Rebecca Davis wrote an article in response to a Desiring God author about the subject of compassion, sympathy, and empathy. Desiring God is John Piper's um, website. Um, let's quickly define the three. Sympathy, as he would has, has stated, or even this article stated, that sympathy is being moved by someone else's sorrow and pain in a way that shows at least some measure of understanding. Like an attentive ear, a listening ear. That's what it would take, just a sympathetic ear, not someone who tries to fix things, is what we'll mention in a minute. Compassion is being moved by someone else's sorrow and pain in a way that motivates action to help the sufferer. A person struggling with a sickness and one attempts to meet a need financially, physically, or emotionally. Then you have empathy is the feeling in quotes that one person can feel for another who is in pain because they know what it's like to go through the same experience. The death of the loved one, abuse in any form. Now the Desiring God author made some comments about empathy that troubled Rebecca Davis. Here are some of his comments. I believe it was, it was known to be a, a, a man. Empathy is the counterfeit of compassion. These are, these are his statements. Empathy says that unless comforters subordinate their feelings entirely to the misery, pain, sorrow, and even sin and unbelief of the afflicted, they are not loving them. It is true that feelings are important, but empathy will cause one to think that feelings are all important. And then he goes on to say, sufferers tend to make two demands that are impossible to fulfill simultaneously. On the one hand, they want people to notice the depth of their pain and sorrow, how deep they are in the pit, how unique and tragic their circumstances. At the same time, they do want to be made to feel that they really need to assist the assistance of others. In one breath, they say, help me. Can't you see I'm suffering? And in the next, they say, how dare you act as though I needed you or your help? So in some case, some of those statements can be true in depending on the context. And then there was another person who chimed in in the article, a person who has been abused by her ex-husband, comments in a reference to this author, to this particular author of Desiring God. It is a very rare thing for someone to resist or resent someone who isn't there to interrogate or to make demands, who just brings a cup of cold water, makes some sandwiches, and sits and listens. How is this somehow not spiritual enough? See, I, as, we, as we consider the vision, 2020 vision, as we think about in the last couple of weeks, we talked about, you know, confident vision, a compelling vision, a collaborating vision. We've been talking about the life of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. We were talking about the story of rebuilding the temple or rebuilding the wall and rebuilding Jerusalem. And we see that we talked about last week about the collaborating vision of many people coming together, even though it's hard and difficult and trying. And we see now at the end of this particular narrative in chapter six, just at this part of the narrative, we're going to see that there's something that Nehemiah shares with his enemies that most people need. 
that we have as the body of Christ that we can offer to everyone else, that we can offer to each other and to the world. Something unique, something that's different, something that people would say, wow, you know, wow, what makes this person or these people different? What makes these Christians different? No, it's not how we conduct services on Sunday morning. No, it's not how we dress. No, it's not our Christianese language. No, that doesn't really move anybody. I think what can move someone who doesn't even know who God is, who Jesus Christ is, the thing that we can offer to the whole world and to one another is, is what is a character unique in God that displays not just in the New Testament but also in the Old Testament is compassion. Why is it that when it comes to compassion, we may be at the end of the line as a, as a people of God? How come we're not at first and jumping to saying, how can we be compassionate? How can we reach people who are lost? How can we reach people who are far away to hear the word compassion and to see it in our lives? What does that look like? It's easy to be compassionate to someone who likes me. It's easy to be compassionate to a family member because we have, we have something in, in what we call, we have something bought in. But what about to a stranger? What about to someone we don't know? Hey, let me go a little bit further. How about to an enemy, someone you don't like? Can you imagine? What would it look like if you could show compassion to people who really want to do harm to you? I mean, what does that look like? We have to look at this narrative and think, Nehemiah is in the midst of rebuilding a wall where there are people out to kill him. Do you have any threats lately? <laughs> have you had anybody send you a threat saying, I don't like you. I wish you were away from this earth. I wish you didn't exist. I hope that I can find someone to just remove you. Can you imagine? Well, even the Bible says that we were once enemies of God. Do you ever think about that? Well, I didn't really feel like I was an enemy of God. I just didn't care. I was apathetic. But the Bible says we were enemies before we came to Christ. Do you ever think about that? See, we have something to offer to the world and to each other that we often don't do so well. It's called compassion. And so when I think about this, I think about it and I call it a compassionate vision. One where we can share something that's welling up in us. The body of Christ has the, the Holy Spirit who lives in us as the third person of the Trinity that can make that difference. And if we have that compassion that comes from God, why is it that we're the last ones in line? What can we do to share it, to bring it forth? Not to, not to share it as, as though, look at me, look at me, but share it in a way that's unique, different than anyone else. So then I ask this question as you look at your outlines. Is compassion a sign of weakness or strength? Is compassion a sign? Now, some would say, even someone who mentioned to me this week when I, when I posed that question, they said, it, I mean, can it be a weakness? Well, the author of Desire and God seemed to think it was. He seemed to think that too much empathy can cause people to lean on feelings. Too much um, too much of what we would call as we give too much grace, people are enabled. And so we have to understand that if God is compassionate, he doesn't enable anyone. We know that in our walk with God because God always has to hold us to the fire. He's refining us and making us more like Jesus. But compassion is, is not a sign of weakness. Actually, it's a sign of strength. But as we ask that question, we have to think through it because weakness would be too much empathy. Too much sympathy, too much compassion. But see, a strength for 
compassion is, is written here, is compassion will sometimes be involved in helping to relieve the suffering, whether it be physical or emotional suffering. Now, if we're hurting, we would hope that someone would be compassionate towards us. But sometimes compassion understands that the suffering can't really be relieved, but must be walked through. Compassion will be willing to walk through it with a person. Doesn't mean that you are enabling them. Doesn't mean that you are allowing them to get away with things. It just means you're walking with them, helping them through the struggle, counseling them, showing them that maybe there's some spots in their lives, blind spots, that they may have to work on. Or maybe it's something that's out of their control, and you have to walk through the emotional struggle of it. But it's difficult for us. Now, weakness is this. This is where compassion can be weak. We try to fix the person and tell them to stop grieving. In other words, shut off your emotions and get over it. I need to tell you that doesn't work. I just need to tell you that just doesn't work. I mean, when we can draw a line and say, get over it, suck it up, whatever, it's not going to work in that context. In some cases, it does work. Suck it up does work sometimes. Why does it work? Because sometimes there are people who hold on and expect pity all the time. That's the weakness where we have to be careful that we, we try to carry them through. But sometimes we have to call them out in love. But if you walk, walk them through it, that can be a strength. Because you can say, hey, listen, I love you, care for you. I really think you're great. But listen, I, I see this. I don't know if you realize you're doing this. But you have to have a relationship. You have to walk with them. So compassion can be that. And see, in the Old Testament, as we, we think about compassion, we see the Shema. Deuteronomy it's very clear in chapter 6, verse 4. And the Shema is the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your might. See, when they're Israelites, God's people truly loved the Lord in relationship, honoring him with a devoted and dedicated heart, and loved one another in community. They became a light to the Gentiles, as the Bible says even in the Old Testament. There's a compassionate component to being a light to the Gentiles. See, if, in other words, it's simple like this. When Isaiah would talk about that in the motif of the suffering, suffering servant, he was showing that the suffering servant was coming for a purpose, not only to, to build up the Israelites, but to reach to those who are outside of other nations. And see, what he was doing was he was trying to highlight the fact of reminding his people about the loyal covenant. And if they would truly love God and love each other and really build one another up as the people of God, because the Israelites were the people of God, they could be a light and be compassionate towards the Gentiles. And I think that that's what was missing with the Israelites of the Old Testament. See, God was trying to convey to them the importance of being compassionate, the importance of seeking him. See, God is compassionate, merciful, and gracious, and loving. Most people would say, well, no, that's just in the New Testament through Jesus. Jesus, and he came in grace and truth, full of grace and truth. And we understand that he is the one that has brought forth grace. No, 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 that's not, that's not true. Because even in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed to Moses, he said, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, Elohim, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, meaning he's not going to, he's drawing a line, he won't allow for any enablement, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the, on the children and on the children's children. 
to the third and fourth generation. See, this is God who's merciful. When David had committed sin against God with Bathsheba, he cried out in verse 1 of Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to the abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, when we're struggling, when we're going through a difficult time, we're emotionally struggling, physically struggling, we want God's compassion, his mercy, his sympathy, his love. Why? Because we're crying out to him. But how come as a people of God, when we're hurting, we want it, but when other people are hurting, we don't give it? Why is it that we fail in those areas? Because I think sometimes we're just focused on ourselves. Sometimes we're struggling with looking at ourselves and not being compassionate enough to think what are people going through. We, we need to grab onto an empathetic mindset and love people and try to feel what they're going through. At least start with sympathy that leads to compassion. That could be empathetic and empathy. And that's where God has shown forth in himself in the Old Testament when even Jonah himself didn't want God's mercy on Nineveh. A people far away from God, a people who were not Israelites. God made it clear because Nineveh, in Nineveh, God still had passion and compassion to reach people who were far away from him. And Jonah was opposed to it. Jonah goes, I knew you were going to be gracious. I know you were going to be merciful. I know that you were going to be compassionate. I know you wanted to reach these people. But Lord, really? That far to these people who are godless and lost? Yes. That's God's heart. And that's what we have to have, a heart for the people who are far away from God. Because God has that heart. My goodness, we got to get it together so when we do, then we can reach those who are far away and desire to want to see people who are far away. Do you remember when you were far away from God? Do you remember when you were lost? Then please grab a hold of God's heart and try to reach someone else beside yourself. It's not about us. It's about the kingdom of God and the compassion that we should have when we spend time with God. When people want nothing but to come against you and hurt you, you fall on your knees and say, oh God, have mercy on them. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would love on them and care for them. Because Lord, you love that person who's trying to come against me. That is what we have to do. We have to compassionately cry out to God because it's not about me. I can assure you that I have been threatened by many people in my life before Christ and even in Christ. It's the funniest thing in the world. But the beauty is that God reminds me when someone's coming after me, he says, son, you came after me before you came to know my son. And I said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner in desperate need of Christ. I know where I stand in my heart, and I will be dedicated to continue to seek him with all that I have. But there are days when we would need to have compassion, and we would need to ask God, because that's what we're called to. We're not called to, what credit is the Bible says? What credit is it that we love someone who loves us? There's no credit. But Jesus said in chapter 5 of Matthew, you'll get credit when you love those your enemies and you love them back that's the beauty of God because he shows forth that compassion throughout the scriptures and if God is compassionate towards people in the Old Testament it's obviously declared and proclaimed in the New Testament through his son Jesus Christ so as we arrived at this narrative the part of the narrative of Nehemiah we've come to see that the wall has been rebuilt the gates are needed to be replaced we're in chapter 6 if you would turn with me to chapter 6 However, a wall has been replaced in 52 days because of a collaborating vision that has come to fruition. God's people 
that came together as a team to accomplish a task, if we could all have this compassionate heart together for the kingdom of God, what we could do to flood this place in the love of God, and then this love that comes in this place, not in this building, but in our hearts, in our temple, in our hearts, that we could reach the world for the kingdom of God, what would that look like? What would, look, would that look like if we could have that? Well, collaborating together to rebuild a wall, what would it look like collaborating together to have a compassion for God? And the task of reestablishing the city of Jerusalem with a wall for protection from the Gentile nations. In addition, the reestablishing of a people of God was necessary. One, to become an identified people of God. To, again, as I stated, reveal his character, reflect his glory, and represent him to all the other nations around them. Even toward the very end of the project, his enemies attempted, Nehemiah's, to find a way to meet up with him. They were desperate either to eliminate Nehemiah, kill him, or find another way to stop the Israelites from gaining any more additional momentum. Sam Ballot's mind, he probably thinking, they haven't yet finished. Maybe we could stop it still. So as you look with me to chapter 6, verse 1, as we think about Nehemiah wanting to demonstrate God's love as an example to the other Israelites, he was a leader, he was a governor, he was appointed by God to lead, and he wanted to demonstrate God's character of compassion, which ultimately is tested before his enemies. So if you look at your outline, there, I believe there are three ways Nehemiah demonstrates his compassion. One is that he was, he was purposeful. He was purposed in his heart. He was purposed in his heart. When others attempted to distract him from the vision. He was purposed in his heart. See, Nehemiah's enemies first attempted to lure him from the outside, to the outside of the city as a pretense for peacemaking. So he was purposed in his heart because they were trying to distract him. Let's just look at this passage for just a minute. It says, now when Sambalan and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gate. Because again, there was, the, there was a wall, but the gates were still open. So they were setting up the gates. Remember, Sambalat is the governor of Samaria. Tobiah was that, what we call that CIA agent, the spy, who was married to someone inside of the, of the wall of Jerusalem with someone yeah, he was connected with and married to, but yet he was connected to Sambalat. So he was that spy. You have Geshem the Arab. So you have enemies that were against Israel, against Nehemiah. And in verse 2, it says, Sambalat. And Geshem sent to me saying, come and let us meet together at a Kahirim to the plain of Ono. You ever ask the question, oh no. Oh no. Oh no. Here it comes. Oh no. I mean, you know, so it's like in the plain of Oh no. They're going to want to get, to get together. So, okay. So, but they intended to do me harm. So Nehemiah knew that they were intending to do harm. Now it says, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop when I leave it and come down to you? And then they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. So it's interesting that what you see here is that here he is, Nehemiah, being distracted by these guys again. Do you think they really cared about meeting together? I mean, they asked to meet at a halfway point between Jerusalem and, Sam and Samaria. They asked to meet at a halfway point to be able to work through this. 
and that he didn't see it. He saw it was a distraction. He saw that they were going to destroy him. They knew they were trying to do whatever they can. This is psychological warfare. Whatever they can do to get in, because what do they figure? If the wall's built, the gates are not up yet, let me get in. So if we get in, we can still stop them from following through. Then they won't gather together as a people. They won't identify themselves with God any longer. They won't become that people of God, and then they won't become a threat to us. We won't allow them to get them over us. We're going to win this battle to the end. See, that's the enemy. That's Satan. Satan will do whatever he can to come in any kind of crack in your mind and your heart and saying, you know, how can I get in? How can I cause disunity? How can I cause this person to be distracted to the point where it's like, you know what? I'm going to get them to think about themselves. I'm going to think about them protecting themselves. No longer would they think God will protect them. Now they have to protect themselves. So we go into this tense place where we say, you know what? If God's not for me, I'm for myself. I'm going to figure this out. And see... Nehemiah had to one of the commentaries, which I really appreciated, they said three possible convictions for Nehemiah. Why did he resist these men? Why couldn't he have been diplomatic and met with them? Why? Well, number one, he had a conviction. He knew they were lying and wanted to kill him. He knew it. I mean, there's a record here. There's a pattern. All of a sudden, now they had an epiphany and they changed? No way. These guys were about their own business. They were enemies. He knew God called them to finish the vision and not distracted by his enemies. He knew that. That was number two. He had a conviction. He knew God called them. And he said, you know what? We're called to finish this vision. I'm not meeting with you. Third, they had nothing in common with Samballot and Tobiah. They did not want the Israelites to rebuild the city and the wall. So that was far from the truth. They didn't want to cooperate with Nehemiah. These were enemies that were trying to get in. They repeated and they didn't didn't want to impede Nehemiah's commitment to follow the Lord. Keep their eyes focused on the the play and the plan. When When we take our eyes off the prize of the goal, we make mistakes. You know, I I read up on an article that says distraction. What are some things in which distract us from God? Well, an, an article said this distraction, at least the dangerous kind I'm referring to is shifting from our attention from the greater importance to the lesser importance. That's one of our distractions. External, dis- external distractions could be money. We're worried about our money, worried about our bills. We get so distracted by what's going on in our lives. We don't focus on God, we focus on money. Media, we get so enamored with media. We get, we're focusing, we're watching all the news channels. We're trying to find out the new news. We're trying to get to, to the breaking news. We're so distracted by that. We're not praying. We're not reading the word of God. We're not seeking God. We're not, at, we're not de- devoting ourselves and meditating on the Lord. We meditate on media. We meditate on whatever news channel you want to watch, Fox News. And so you go like that, and you go to NBC, CNN, whatever you want to watch. Or it's routine. We just get caught up in a routine. We're afraid of change. We just got to function with routine. Maybe it's our work. Maybe it's the tyranny of the urgent. We just feel like everything is the tyranny of the urgent. we got to go to the next thing and distract us. Maybe it's just the need for relationships. Whenever we just can't go without relationship. Relationships are necessary. Sometimes we're distracted by them too. Internal distractions could be pride, arrogance, envy, jealousy, selfishness, ego, judgment, 
I mean, it just goes on and on and on. All of this internally struggling. Something from our past, something that consumes us. Well, this, this gentleman said, one way to get out of it, self-control, the Bible says. One of the fruit of the Spirit. That when distractions come, that, they're going to come. We get ourselves focused. No, 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 I don't want to think about money right now. No, 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 I don't want to think about what's going on in the world. No, 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 I can't do that. So that's the first thing. When we think about compassion, we think about how he, he was demonstrating compassion. The first thing was that he purposed in his heart not to allow anything to distract him. He focused on what was important. Number two, he was patient when others attempted to intimidate him. He was patient. See, now again, this was not just four times that he offered, not four times, but now we see that it's a fifth time in verse 5. He comes in, and he says it's the fifth time. If you look at it, it says, In the same way, Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent him servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, an open letter means that he wanted the public to know what was going on. And it's written, it says, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building a wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have set, aside, set up prophets to proclaim concerning in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, let us talk or take counsel together. See, what he's he saying here, and then it goes on, but what he's saying then, he goes, then he said to him, no such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them, Nehemiah says, out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. See, here's what's happening here. He was being patient. They were coming after him. They were threatening him. They were intimidating him. They were trying to frighten him. They even said, you know, we have an open letter. We're going to warn the king in Persia saying that you're trying to become king of this whole area, that you who are the so-called governor, you really want to become king. That's why you're the governor. And you know what? You're trying to set all this thing up in, in Jerusalem because you have a plan. You have an agenda. You are the one who's trying. See, what kills me is that Nehemiah comes. He's the governor of of this area that appointed by the king of Persia. He's the governor of, of Jerusalem right now in that area of Judah. And here he is trying to avoid himself from being recognized. Even in chapter 5, he doesn't give the allotment of food for himself. He wants to show others. That's a compassionate heart. He's not looking to be recognized to the others around him. He's not leading them because he wants to prove that he's a leader. He's not leading them because he thinks, if I could get this next step of like a promotion, I could do it. No, that had nothing to do with it. He simply had a vision of God, and he was obeying God. And when he had God's vision, he was carrying it out. And can you imagine who would want to go back to your place where people want to kill you? Who would want to walk into a dangerous situation like that? Who would want to risk their lives with, this, with the concept of becoming a king? That is foolishness. God didn't call him to be a king. God called him to lead his people to rebuild a wall, of which he did of which he followed through, of which he honored God, but his enemies didn't want to see that. His enemies instead wanted to deal with him and get rid of him. They were manipulating him. They were threatening him. They were trying to get him to do what they wanted him to do. But he didn't give in. He says, you're inventing this. This is your own idea. I mean, for goodness sake, Persia, already the king of Persia gave him a letter saying you could do this. He brought his own officials. His army was with him. 
I mean, that can't be more clear. But yet, Samballot and Tobiah are trying to manipulate and deceive and accuse. That's the enemy against Satan. And compassion kills all of that. When we say, God, you're a compassionate God. I could retaliate, get some swords, some spears, and have those guys killed. But then I would disobey you, God. So you know what, Lord? I lay them before your throne. I pray right now that you would strengthen our hands. He leans on prayer. See, that's a patient heart. That's a compassionate heart. That's one who's believing God, not himself, who's not reacting, who's not rebelling. See, sometimes when people intimidate us, we start to doubt. We question. We fear. We wonder if God is there. We even go into the world of what, I, what we can call maybe. Maybe they're right. Maybe it is impossible to get this done. Maybe I don't have what it takes. You start looking inside rather than to God. Maybe I bit off more than I could chew here. <laughs> Took too much on myself. Maybe I'm just not good enough. See, God didn't call Nehemiah to that. God didn't call Nehemiah 500 miles to look to himself. God called Nehemiah to depend on him. God called Nehemiah to fulfill a vision. Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he said what he said. No such things. No such things can have been done. He focused on God and knew. So what did he do? He prayed. As we saw last week and we see throughout this book, he leans on God in prayer. That's dependency. Third thing that we see here is he was perceptive when others attempted to be deceptive. He was perceptive when others attempted to be deceptive. You know, as you look at this passage, now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, of Medabal, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in a house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And then it says this, and I understood. That word understood in the NASB is perceived. In the NET, it's I recognize. ESV, it's I understood. He was able to see why he knew that this so-called prophet that was calling him into the temple, Nehemiah said, I'm not allowed according to the law to be in the temple. Why would you as a prophet ask me to be in the temple? Uh-oh, deception. They're deceiving me to believe, oh no, they're coming, let's protect you. When they were trying to bring him into the temple to kill him. They were trying to set him up. He was bought, this prophet was bought by Samballat and Tobiah to go and kill Nehemiah. Nehemiah, God gave him a perception that said, wait a minute. These guys are really out to get me. They're trying whatever they can. They're trying three different ways to kill me. You ever have that kind of enemy? I'll tell you what, an enemy is in every form. Someone's out to get you. Maybe you're at work and someone's out to get you. Maybe there's someone in your family, someone's out to get you. And someone, you know, someone, someone in your family, you know, it could be a sibling, it could be a cousin, or someone just in your neighborhood just doesn't like you, or someone in the church who just doesn't like you. See, this is what happened. But Nehemiah got it, says, for this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that he could give me a bad name in order to taunt me? Nah. Nehemiah was too focused. He was purposed. He was patient. He was perceptive. That's compassion. 
He could have taken these guys out. He had an army to do it. He could have laid them out. Sharpshooter, no one would know in the middle of the night. Hey, yo, man, did you see Sam Ballard around? I haven't seen him. He woken up yet. Tobiah, where's Tobiah? The wife is mourning for his death. No, he didn't do that. Instead, this is what he did. He prayed. He prayed. Remember Tobiah and Sambalad. Oh, my God. According to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Hodiah. And the rest of the prophets who, want, who wanted to make me afraid. What incredible compassion. I don't know about you, but people have done worse to me, and I want to react, and I want to retaliate. Not Nehemiah. He was focused. He was focused. See, this is why I asked the question. We demonstrate compassion to all people. How do we truly demonstrate compassion to all people today in the body of Christ? Praying for our enemies. Praying for our enemies. You don't like someone in this church? Pray for them. You don't like me? Pray for me. You need to pray for me if you don't like me. I'm all right with that. Not everybody does. I've been called worse than anybody would call me in this church, right? Amen, amen. I'll tell you where I grew up. I'm still called that. If I try to get a hold of my brother, you don't want to know the other words on the other side of the receiver because I'm not always loved. But you know what, though? But I'm loved by my God, and I'm called to love you, and I will because the Bible tells me to pray for my enemies, and I don't see you as my enemy. You're my brother and sister in Christ. But that's what God calls us to do. That is the greatest sign of compassion. Why? Because Jesus came. He died for his enemies. <laughs> I don't think we get it. <laughs> I think we forget that. I think we're missing the point here. And the point is this, that Jesus came. He came to die for sinners as a substitutionary atonement for the penalty of sin. He died. He offered an atonement. He offered his son God offered his son to die in their place. He died for you and I. But the greatest sacrifice offered to God was to appease his anger against sin so he would make access to himself. And we can never pay the debt that we owe to God. That is perfection. God desires and demands holiness. And we can't fulfill that, but his son did. That's why it was a perfect sacrifice. He was a substitutionary. He died in our place. He died and atoned for the penalty of sin. It's the greatest gift offered to mankind. Jesus Christ dying for his enemies. He offers his love as a common grace. It's called the universal love of God. He offers it as a common grace. But we can only receive it when we trust in the person and work of Jesus. That's when it becomes efficacious, as we say. Sufficient but efficacious. And so we have to understand that's one. Number two is what we could see. Because here, just, just to give you a scripture, by the way, I just want to read because we understand of his prayer. You have heard that this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, Jesus said. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's compassion. That's compassion. You and I can't deny that if God is compassionate, we need to show forth that character of compassion. Secondly, we're called to proclaim the word of God to those who are far away from God. We are called to do that. 
Jesus himself did it. In the book of Luke, we see it in one instant here, which is in many. In fact, in the book of Luke, the kingdom of God is mentioned 31 times, six times in Acts. So when Luke, the author, wrote about the kingdom of God, it was a present and future concept. It wasn't just at that time present, it was future. And so it's the carryover, and the carryover of both Luke and Acts in this word is a continuity that Jesus' message and the apostles' preaching. So there's a continuity between when Jesus started preaching and his message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand in Matthew 4, 17, and that same continuity of the apostles preaching the same. It's not a discontinuity. There's a continuity carrying out the already not yet called the already not yet kingdom concept when we think about in eschatology we think about that because it's important because the already is that jesus has authority over evil his ability to deal with sin and his reign at the right hand of the father but the not yet is the authority on earth the millennial kingdom and on earth and fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel. That's called the already not yet. That's the continuity, progressive revelation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. For all you theological, theological mindset guys out there who are scholars. That's what it says. He came to save, not to condemn. He came to save, not to condemn. We know this even in this passage right here in John 3.16. We look at John 3.16. It's on every billboard. It's at every sports arena. It's, it's got, it's, there's certain sports players that put John 3.16. You see it all over, but what we forget is 17 and 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world because but in order that the world might be saved through him. He didn't come to condemn people, but to save them through Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's why even Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's important because the Bible clearly states that when we're born, even at conception, we already stand condemned before God. And because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, Jesus, Yeshua, Christ the Messiah. But here's the thing. So we know this, and we understand this as believers, and the compassion that God has to send his Son to save those who are far away from God. How come we can't do it? Something's got to be misconnected. We've got to have a passion and a compassion for those who are far away from God. Today, we have seven people that are being baptized in our church. It's an exciting day because it's one of our church ordinances as water baptism. Water baptism is a command for believers. When a person trusts in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the next step is water baptism. Water baptism is not a requirement of salvation, but necessary step of obedience in the Christian's walk with God. Just as a wedding ring symbolizes just a wedding ring symbolizes the commitment for marriage between a man and a woman. So water baptism symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life. As Romans 6, 4 states, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead,